Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this episode of our magazine format podcast, we have a ton of stuff about food photography. Bruce is interviewing a food photographer who we love a great deal. We're going to have cooking tips and a whole lot more, so let's get going with the first segment. Today, Mark said, we're talking about food photography. So we know a little bit about this. I mean, we've shot all the photos for all of our oh books. We God. do all of our own styling. Books. We, yeah, we do the prop styling. We do the food styling. Mark produces the shoots. And while we are not photographers, we have watched great photographers when we work for the 20 plus years we've been doing this. And we have picked up a lot of tips. Okay, let me tell I'm going to stop right here. And I want to say that over the years, we've been in this business a long time of writing cookbooks. And it has changed so dramatically. Back in the day, <laughs> we're talking like the late 90s, early 2000s. Honestly, a food shoot would involve like two to three shots a day. If. Go yes. on all day. We once worked with a photographer who, uh, this is back in the day when budgets were explosively huge, and he had an entire room full of, and I don't mean to be sexist here, but this is the truth, he had an entire room full of 20-year-old women who worked for him. They did everything. They set up the camera. They set up the food. They did everything for him. And then he would—he was standing over in a corner of the room. There were cell phones around, but not like smartphones. There were flip phones. He stood in a corner on a phone the whole time. And then he would come over and peer through the lens of the camera and either go, yes or no. If he said yes, he clicked it. No, he'd walk away. And then they'd redo things. And it took all day to take two shots. Okay, that is not the way it works anymore. No, we shoot upwards of 15 shots a day yeah. when we are shooting. Yeah. And we work like crazy. So, but And like, I should say that we, in a previous episode of this podcast, had Lucy Schaefer on and her new book, Lunch. And we worked with her once. And oh my gosh, uh, I think on that shoot where we had Lucy Schaefer, I think we were taking upwards of 40 shots a day. They were process shots. So there were shots at Bruce cooking. But honestly, it was unbelievable what happened in that shoot. Okay, so let's do the most most basic question what makes a good shot of food well there's a big difference between something being delicious and looking delicious that's right trust me there is no good way to make breakfast porridge look edible in a photograph and i love oatmeal more than i can say you, you can barely shoot it same thing with chocolate pudding I love chocolate pudding. Mm. Just use your imagination. Yeah. You don't really need me it to go into doesn't it. doesn't like, you know, we, if you shoot oatmeal and maybe chocolate pudding too, you have to cover it with stuff. You have to cover it with whipped cream or with berries or with blueberries or strawberries. You have to do things to it because otherwise it is so hideous. Okay. You should also know that the key to good photography, if you're looking to up your Instagram game, is lighting. And here's the thing. Take the flash <laughs> off your phone. Never, ever use Use the camera flash on no, your phone. No, don't use it. It's terrible. It doesn't matter how bad the lighting is where you are. Right. That will make it look worse. That's right. In fact, more current smartphones will delay and hold and shoot in low light. They're designed to do that. Let the phone do what it's supposed to do. And by the way, if you don't know this, 
Every photo program on your smartphone has an editing feature. Use it. You can increase the lighting in the editing feature. You'll find little symbols there that tell you how to pull up the light on it, pull up the contrast. You don't ever use the flash on your phone. If you really have to shoot indoors and there's really no other light, you could buy an inexpensive light box. We have one, and it's great. It's just a little box full of light. You put your food in it, and it looks beautiful, but... The best light, and we have learned this from so many other photographers, is if you can do it, shoot in natural light. Yep, but we don't mean direct sunlight. No, never. Always think indirect. Yep. So think, don't put your food next to a window. Put (laughs) it several steps away from the window. Put it in the shade away from the window, and yet you're still getting the natural light. And that's the first thing. So take the flash off your phone, think about shooting in indirect natural light, and then think about composition. And what do we mean by composition? Well, composition is where is the food placed in the frame, right? That's so right. is it in the center? Is it off center? Is the food filling the whole screen? Is it coming off the screen? Are there other things besides the food? Are the glasses over? All of that is composition. I think that this is what most people don't understand. When people say photographers have a great eye and the photographer Bruce is going to interview later in this podcast has a great eye. I think it's two great eyes. <laughs> Maybe two great eyes. <laughs> uh, what basically they're talking about is the photographer knows how to work with composition. Yeah. The people think that if a photographic eye means they're able to catch a shot, you know, like, oh, look, they just got that seal jumping out of the ocean. That's not what a great photographic eye is. A great photographic eye is the ability to build composition in shot. To place that seal midair. <laughs> in just the right mm. place. Yeah, because the seal jumping out of the ocean is luck. That's not composition. That's not being a great photographer. That's just luck. So and one, you caught it when it happened. So one of the tricks of composition, um, it's, it's like the Hollywood squares. You know that grid? You have nine. Some people know it as Sudoku. You have nine boxes, three yep. rows of three boxes. Well, where those boxes intersect, those intersection points, especially the four around the middle box, you want your main subject to overlap one of those intersection so points. we're not talking about putting food in the center square. Mm-mm. We're talking about putting the main subject at one of the intersection points amongst four, uh, four squares. Because it has been proven through neurological studies and all sorts of things that your eye naturally goes to intersections. And quite honestly, your brain makes up grids. So even if there's not a grid on that photo... Your mind sees it. And you know why that is. So can I be technical? Please, go into it. Here's why your mind makes up grids is because it's how your mind recognizes faces. And the facial recognition software in your brain translates into the world around you. Basically, your brain is looking for the intersection of eyes, nose, and mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's looking for the cross points. And that's how you determine one face from another. That's why you can see the difference in faces is because you're looking at intersections basically of crossing lines in facial recognition. And then you... You take that software in your brain that is built in biologically in order for you to recognize your mom and your dad and all that kind of stuff, and you apply it to the world around you, and you are looking for intersections. So the same reason you can recognize your mother is the same reason you think one hamburger shot looks better than another hamburger shot. That's exactly it. It really is. That's really it. All right, now I want to talk about angling the camera, right? Tilting the camera one way or another. I have one word for you. Don't. (laughs) Do not. Do not. 
tilt your camera to the right or left. That dutched angle, it just makes the viewer dizzy. Yeah, it does. And remember when you're shooting shots, don't forget all the stuff that goes around it. You know, you want to have, if you're going to shoot, I don't know, you, you, you're in a restaurant and you get a beautiful plate and you think, oh, I want to post this on Instagram. Don't, you look down at the plate just for a second and wipe the rim of it. Just <laughs> so that, you know, the plate is cleaned up a little bit. This is just upping your game a little bit. You know, if there's, I don't know, a piece of parsley or there's a, the, some blue cheese crumbles on your plate kind of move them forward into the frame think about where those intersections are and if you put those blue cheese crumbles right on those intersection points of the nine box grid you're gonna have a much better shot and mark's comment about cleaning up the edge of the plate that works for your hands too like if you're going to be holding a drink don't do it with dirty fingernails oh my gosh like that's really gross i think everybody kind of knows that and it's implicit but but you know the world has run off onto this instagrammable moment and it is and you know it is part of what we do and it is part of how we how we live our lives at this point and taking better photographs is part of it and you don't have to be crazy about this you just have to think about it in terms of the way food photographers think but maybe on a very baby junior level okay so enough about food photography because we're going to talk much more about it when bruce interviews the fabulous eric metzger in a minute but now let's move on to segment two hey before we get to segment two i want to remind you to please go to facebook and go to our group cooking with bruce and mark Join the group, join the conversation, you'll get great recipes, you will see beautiful pictures of food, where the food is placed perfectly in that grid, and we'll have a lot of fun. So come to Facebook, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Okay, here's our one-minute cooking tip today. Make sure you always have a pen or pencil in hand when you use a cookbook. Seriously, write in your cookbook. They are not holy. They are not untouchable. Make notes. Make notes of what worked. Make notes of what didn't work. Yep. Did you make changes? Did yep. your oven need a different temperature? Yep. Did it take a different time? Write in your books. Do you know that e-cookbooks lag the e-book market significantly? People still want paper cookbooks. And I think there's several reasons for that. They don't want their iPad or their reader in the kitchen with them for fear of spills, but also because people like to look at the page as they cook. And that page is there for a reason. It's so you can write in it. You can. The best recipes that I own are all marked up in the margins. And the worst, because I have big X's down that yeah. whole page, knowing never to go back there. I do. I have several cookbooks. We have several cookbooks that have giant X's over <laughs> just because the recipes didn't work. Okay, that's our one-minute cooking tip. Cook with a pen or a pencil. Maybe not in the dish, but in the thing itself. Now, up next, Bruce's interview with the fabulous food photographer, Eric Metzger. I'm talking to Eric Metzger, an amazing photographer based in Brooklyn. Eric has shot almost all of Mark's and my cookbooks. He's shot the WD-50 book. He shoots for Death & Co. and a lot of other bars and drink companies in the New York area and around the world. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to shoot drinks. Hey, Eric. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for joining us. So you do shoot a lot of food for Mark and me, but the rest of your life, you shoot a lot of drinks. So what's the biggest difference between shooting food and shooting cocktails? 
I think to start, I do light them very similarly. Uh, typically, I always approach it with artificial light, even if there's beautiful natural light in the room. I typically do that for consistency's sake. Just being able to control light for both food and beverage was drilled into my head by my mentors. No matter what room you walk into, you always have to walk away with your own photograph. And so one of the biggest differences, I think, is when you're shooting cocktails, you're dealing mostly with glass and translucent materials uh, in which light can pass through. So I can shoot it at more of a eye level. Um, and then when you're shooting food, I typically have to find a piece of furniture or an apple box in which to stand on and shoot down into it. And that's not because you're short. That's no, just I just don't you, have your height. You just need to get up higher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's probably one of the biggest differences between the two is just the translucent nature of liquid versus uh, how solid the food materials are. And so although you, the, the lighting approach can be very similar, the angles in which you need to approach them from the camera's perspective is slightly different. So when I look at your drink shots, they glow. I mean, they, they look like they're all lit from inside. How do you make that happen? So the glow typically comes from uh, the liquid being backlit. It can catch uh, light better um, from the camera's perspective. So I'll take my strobe and I'll put it behind either directly or off to either the right or the left. And cross-lighting back into the glassware will really uh, amplify whatever color or viscosity of the liquid in the glass. And is that also why you tend to have darker backgrounds when you're shooting liquids? Does that help the light bounce back into the drink from behind? The dark backgrounds kind of came from uh, when I was first starting shooting at Death & Co. And they had a lot of bottles on the back bar. And I really wanted to isolate whatever action was happening in the foreground. And by putting a black solid or having something darker in the background, whatever your subject is, whatever you want the audience to see can then separate and come forward. And I'm constantly searching for those separations, no matter if it's food or beverage, how does the most important part of the photograph come forward and present itself? Mark and I talked earlier in this episode about composition. That's why you hire a photographer, their sense of composition, their eye. But you're also talking about separating that main subject from all the other background. And you do that through lighting. I think it comes from being drawn to cinematic light. I really love film and the dramatic approach to lighting in that media. And so I'm constantly searching for whatever the moment is, whatever the most important part of the photograph is, hitting that with some dramatic light and really amplifying what's there. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors or just making things feel more dramatic or cin cinematic. There's a lot of action also in a lot of your photography. I love the way you mix fire with cocktails. How do you make that successful? I like the narrative and the action photos as well. They're a lot of fun to shoot, especially when you're dealing with a lot of static. Cocktails and food don't move that much, but the people that make them do. And so to focus on some of those techniques and processes is a really fun challenge to, to photograph. With fire or even expressing um, orange zest over a cocktail or 
grating nutmeg. It's really just about trying to capture that perfect moment in which where that fire is expressing itself, because that can be quick. It burns out very fast, especially if it's coming from the oils of a citrus. You also have to remember to stop down because it's a very bright flash of light. And so if you are shooting in a very sunny bar, then you might have to compensate your exposure in order to get that light. With that fire, you're going to have to compensate again in the camera uh, in order to catch it because either it'll be overexposed or underexposed depending on on your camera settings. Now, you, you mentioned if it's a sunny room or the ambient light, you have to adjust your camera, but you're still using artificial light which wipes out all that sun. I'm always using artificial light. Um, I, you know, and, and it goes back to the consistency thing. When I was coming up and, and assisting, I worked with a lot of different people. And the thing that I noticed with those that were very successful was that no matter what room they walked into, whether it was a basement or a studio, north-facing beautiful window light, you had to be able to walk away with your photo. And so one of the ways to make yourself consistent is to never rely on what is just found, what is just presented to you, but to cultivate it and bring in your own, uh, approach it um, with your own style and bringing in lights will help you do that. It's really fascinating because in the first part of this episode, Mark and I talked about like taking the light off of your phone. If you're just a amateur and you're, shooting for Instagram, never ever use the flash on your phone. (laughs) You're not talking about using that as artificial light. You're talking about professional lights and there are also different sorts. So I still want to say to people listening, if you're shooting for Instagram, that burger at the diner, take the flash off your phone and use the ambient light there. We're talking here about professional lights that Eric's using. So I want to ask you things that are difficult to shoot. I know when we shoot food together, there are certain things that we can bring out that make you cringe. Oatmeal, chocolate pudding. When I tell you, you have to shoot into a stainless steel pot. You don't like these things. Yes. What makes you quiver when you have to shoot drinks and beverages? Really round glassware is very problematic, like cognac snifters or burgundy glasses. Anything that has a really substantial bevel to it, that's going to act like a a fun house mirror at a carnival. It's just going to reflect everything in the room. And so the challenge becomes how do you remove those reflections intentionally? Sometimes that means moving your light. Sometimes that's using a variety of show cards, a, a black and a white piece of foam core or cardboard. And that will help you either bounce light in or absorb light if it's the black side. And um, what about fixing those reflections in post? Is that something you try to avoid or is it something you could do? The general rule that I try to have is if I can get it in camera, let's get it in camera. And that helps with post-production time. It also helps with keeping you sharp on your craft and not relying too heavily on just doing everything in post. I typically will spend the extra time while shooting trying to get those reflections out of glassware whenever possible. 
not always possible, but whenever possible, I, I, I try to. And as you said, the other things that are really hard to shoot are stainless steel products. Like uh, if you have barware or jiggers that are bevel-y and also reflective like a mirror, that can, that can be a challenge. And then anything that has bright textured patterns. So like you said, gingham or um, tablecloths that your grandmother may have laid down. Those can be challenging, but also fun, depending on, on what kind of dishes you're shooting. If it's granola or oatmeal, like you said, maybe that works on, on gingham because it, it needs something in order to bring up the interest of what's in that bowl. Are there any particular colors or textures of drinks that are harder than others? I think when it comes to drink, the textures that are the hardest to photograph are the ones that that are less translucent. So think about hot drinks that are milk-based. Those don't allow light to move through them as well. And so all of a sudden you've taken something that can shine from within as the light hits it to something that needs light to wrap around it more because it can no longer pass through. And so what you'll wind up having is these very tough gradients from where the light source is coming from versus where it's in shadow. And one of the things that you can do is bring in a show card, like I said before, that, that white and black piece of cardboard, uh, and you can bounce some light in. That'll help with texture there. There's some, there's some textures in cocktails that will separate very fast. And so if you're shooting, let's say, frozen drinks, you'll you'll get a quick melt and so they will die very fast and you'll have to replace them what's your take on faking it of using fake slush or oh those lovely acrylic ice cubes i do like to approach things mostly from a non-fake world at the studio here we keep typically about 80 pounds of cold draft in in the freezer and we keep two inch cubes, spheres, and spears. They will melt. They can be a little more complicated to shoot, but I think that the end result is one that approaches a more natural visual. Even the really best fake ice, to my eye, I can still see that it's been blown by, by a glass blower. Uh, whether it's because it's sitting to, you know, all the way at the bottom of the glass or there's just no melt on it, those things will come through. Certain things are easy to fake, right? If the cocktail calls for the most premium spirit, maybe we're not going to pour that. Maybe we're not going to go for the 15-year-old uh, whiskey. We'll pour something a little that's brown in color but uh, I always typically do use real products. So we're not using iced tea instead of uh, whiskey. I agree with that whole attitude. I mean, we only shoot real food when we work with you. I love watching movies and people picking up drinks and ice never floats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it never floats. And the other thing is that the really good quality fake ice is incredibly expensive. You know, a two inch cube can run you almost $200 a cube. There's so much to take into account when you're shooting drinks, I think even more so than when you're you're shooting food. And you have an amazing eye for doing it. So besides food, I know you do a lot of portraits as well. Um, any other projects that you're working on at the moment? I recently shot the book cover for an Oxford Press book called The Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. Uh, that's written by David Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum. That'll be out in the fall. I'm also, at the moment, trying to work on a workshop here at the studio. So 
engaging with a younger generation of photographers that might be wanting to learn about production, cocktail photography, things like that. And then we are constantly, you know, shooting some advertising and book projects here in the studio as well. And the studio is in Brooklyn. You can find more about what Eric's doing at ericmedsker.com. And you could follow him on Instagram, where he is also Eric Metzger. And that's Eric with a C and Metzger with a K. Eric Metzger, thanks for joining us on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thank you, Bruce. This was amazing. Great interview, Bruce. I love Eric. I have so much fun working with him. He is a great person, great personality, so low-key, so low-drama. It's <laughs> so talented. Everything you want in a photographer. Segment four, our weekly What is Making Us Happy in Food. This week, it's apples for me because it's mid-September and we live in the Berkshires and apples are just coming in. Apples and New England. I don't think mm. I got apples until I moved to New England. I only eat them in September, October, November because otherwise they're disgusting. Yes. No, I I won't eat those disgusting red delicious apples from the supermarket. Oh, there's more food waste problems from our previous (laughs) podcast. But you're not buying them and throwing them out. You're leaving them for other people to eat. (laughs) But I know, but they're (laughs) disgusting. So they get thrown out. I know they get thrown out. Anyway, fresh apples are just one of the great delights of the fall season. If you're not eating fresh apples from a farmer's market you are missing out fresh crunchy tart sweet great juice not dried out from long transport find yourself a farmer's market there are apples available and try a variety you've never had before like a golden russet or fuji's sometimes you can i mean there are so many fabulous kinds of apples try new apples all the time yes indeed okay what's happy making me happy in food this week it's not in food it's that this week my memoir was published (laughs) (laughs) what's making mark happy (laughs) it is my memoir it has nothing really to do with food except the last of it is about how i became a cookbook writer but it is called bookmarked how the great works of western literature up my life and it is now out and it is available and i am so happy it has hit the world it took me four years to write it it took me unbelievable amounts of effort tears surrenders white flags (laughs) tossing in the towels returning to it finding a publisher it was all an epic journey, but the book is now out. It is out, and it has gotten some really fabulous reviews from some fabulous writers. Reviews. And you can find a link on Mark's website, markscarbro.com, and you can read, you can actually hear Mark reading a sample of the book. Yeah. And you can click through and buy the book. And by the way, the audiobook will be out in November. The paper and ebook is out now. So that's our podcast this week, including a completely self indulgent self promotion <laughs> on my part. But hey, what can I tell you? We hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast. We hope you'll rate it. Drop down to the bottom of the Apple menu. You can see a place where you can leave a comment. Leave us one there. But mostly connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook as Bruce Weinstein and Mark Scarborough. We would love to connect with you there. And we look forward to bringing you more fun-filled, packed episodes of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. 